He is trustworthy. Guys, would you grab a Bible and make your way this evening to Acts chapter 15. You guys know how we do this, but on Wednesday night, we're making our way through the Bible, trying to make about a chapter at a time. Uh, we're probably only going to make about half of the chapter uh, tonight as we cover through the things that are there, and so we'll pick up the other half next week, uh, or next time, Lord willing, and so just longing that He would draw us into that and meet us in that. We're hoping you have a Bible, and you've opened it up. If not, there's Bibles in front of you and the chairs in front of you. You can use an electronic device. That works as well. We long for you to be in the Word of God with us. So hear that invitation here in this room. Hear that in our overflow here at online. We want you to have the Bible. Follow along so God would speak to you through His Word. That's our aim. That's what we're longing to have happen. So let's take another moment and pray. I'm going to lead and just long that you would pray as well, that God would just meet us, that He would speak to us, that He would cause us to hear what He has for us, and that you would hear that. So let's ask Him for it now. Father, Your Word, truth, righteousness, good. We need it. Thank you that you have given it to us. And Lord, I ask that tonight you would give us understanding and that through it you would communicate insight. But Lord, you would also, just in your faithfulness, take your word and meet it in lives, every one of us this evening, into a space that Maybe we'd see it coming, maybe it'd come in unexpectedly, but we'd hear it and we'd we'd know that you've spoken. Again, I'm looking to you for that, just trusting you and asking for your power, your grace, your work. Open up our hearts to your word. We ask for that together right now in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Contend earnestly for the faith. Those words rise to us and speak out to us from the scripture. We think about there in the book of Jude where he pleads with us and says, hey, contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered for the saints. There's places, there's spaces where he's telling us, hey, you're going to have to hold fast to this. You're going to have to, uh, you know, argue, if you will, press, hold, contend, fight for it, hold on fast to it. Peter would tell us that there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. That's kind of in a good place for us to start here this evening, and that reality we need to think through. It is that which is being dealt with in the book of Acts here in chapter 15 as they deal with false teaching that's trying to press its way into that and and their response to that and the things that are happening into this place And I don't know, you know, right off the bat, if that sounds like, wow, that's just great. I'm so excited about that. That is exactly what I need. It probably isn't. I mean, I don't know about you. It's not my favorite subject matter, but it's needed. The the Bible's compelling us and letting us know, hey, this is part of the world that you live in. Yeah, he says, you know, Peter tells us there will be false teachers who call themselves Christians, who will be among you, and they're going to bring in things that are just destructive. They're going to try to hurt, and you're going to have to be aware of that. You have to stand against it. You have to be one to say, hey, I'm holding fast to that which is right and that which is true. It's exactly what they're doing here as really some confusion over some false doctrine, false teaching begins to permeate. So why don't you notice it with me there in verse 1 of chapter 15. It says, in certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Hey, pause there. Probably just good to kind of just reorient ourselves into where we are. The city uh, where, where this chapter finds itself beginning, where it starts there in verse 1, is Antioch. It's the city where people were first called Christians, where Paul and Barnabas had spent, you know, over about a year teaching, and then the Holy Spirit had sent them out, and they launched out from Antioch and did that first, you know, mission trip into the Gentile world, taking the gospel, and incredible things happened through Cyprus, up through Antioch and Pisidia, through up in the Galatia region. People have come to Christ. I mean, Numbers of, of those uh, Gentiles, people turning, incredible things happening. It's a great move of God. 
It's people getting saved. They've made their way back to Antioch, and they've just reported the news. In fact, back up with me just there for uh, verse 27 of the previous chapter, and we notice it there. It says, now when they'd come together and gathered the church together, they reported all that God had done with them. And they'd open the door of faith to the Gentiles. So they stayed there a long time with the disciples. So good things are happening. I mean, God is on the move and, and, and just people are getting saved and they're so excited about it. And then some people come down from Judea, from up in Jerusalem, up in Israel, the, the, the nation of Israel there, making their way down, up here to Antioch and walking into this. And it says they came down from Judea and they taught their brethren and said, you know what? Hey, it's great that you're thinking about Jesus, but you're going to have to be circumcised. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Verse 2, Therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing the conversion of the Gentiles. And they caused great joy to all the brethren. And when they'd come to Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all things that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed rose up saying, it is necessary to circumcise them and command them to keep the law of Moses. Well, let's wrap our minds around this just briefly, and we begin to kind of watch what's taking place. And I kind of want to begin this way and just point out something that may be helpful. When we think about false teaching and we think about where it arises and, and how it happens in church, it's interesting that most of the time, false teaching comes into a place where God's on the move, where, where there's things happening, where God is touching lives, and, and, and things are happening, and so that's what's happened right here. I mean, great things have happened. People have gotten saved. There's a, a good work happening, and it's into that space that it often happens. Jesus would say it this way. He'd tell it in a parable. He says, he says another parable he put forth to them, saying, the kingdom of heaven, it's like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed into his field, which is indeed is the least of all the seeds, but when it is grown, it is greater than the herbs and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. So it's a parable. It's a story. It says, I want you to understand what the kingdom of God is like. The, the work that God is doing, we would say it maybe in loose vernacular, the church, the, the, what God is doing in the midst of it. It says, I want you to understand what it's like. It's, it's like this tiny seed, a mustard seed, smallest of all seeds. But when, it, when, when something happens and it grows and, and there's exponential growth and, and it becomes large, almost to, to be a tree, it says when that happens, you know, know this, when it, when it becomes that, the birds of the air will come and nest in its branches. Without spending a bunch of time on this because we're not teaching a parable, but we're talking about Acts 15 here. Hey, there is this whole thing of what's called parabolic consistency. And so as you're trying to think through what this is about, the thing is he describes them as birds. And you're saying, okay, so the birds are going to nest in the branches. What are the birds? Well, he just told the disciples. Just earlier in that part of the chapter, he said that, you know, kind of in the, 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 the sower who goes out to sow his seed in the field, he says the birds of the air would come and steal the, the seed. And he says, hey, that's a work of Satan. You know, that's a, you know, Satan is the one that would come in and, and do this. And so within that imagery, he's telling us this. He's saying, hey, you should expect it. Wherever, you know, you see, you know, just kind of, you know, growth, you see things happening, just don't be surprised. Just know exactly what's going to happen. And so that's exactly what happens here. So right in the midst of it, they, they face a problem that could totally derail it, could totally mess up and kind of get them off track because here these come down here and they basically say, okay, unless you are circumcised, unless you do this, you can't even be saved. Uh, they come in and they look at everything that's happening. And they say, well, that's really great. So glad that people are excited about God and Jesus. But, you know, they're not saved yet because uh, you can't get saved unless you're going to become a Jew. Uh, you're you're going to have to go back and say, well, you're going to have to become one who is kind of a convert to Judaism. You're going to have to go under the Old Testament law, having all that's there is there. You're going to have to be circumcised, and all these things are going to have to become the thing that you do, or else you cannot be saved. 
make no mistake, we, we think about this that they're dealing with, and it's a serious issue that existed then, still exists today, but it becomes really, in many ways, um, the constant attack on the gospel, that it's always something that would take the simplicity of the gospel, the thing that invites us to know that it's only Jesus, and it's only by Christ that we're saved, and we come and say, well, that's great, glad you like Jesus, but you also need this. Hey, I'm glad you like Jesus, but you're going to have to go to our church, or you're going to have to go through, you know, this, you know, aspect. You're going to have to do that or this, and and so the aspect is always to bring in a place that would say, hey, Jesus plus or the gospel plus, you would have to do this to invite us to something else, something that we need to do with that, and and something that we need to do a part of that, and it's an important one to understand. That's exactly what the Bible's not telling us. It's telling us in, in, in that sense we're, we need Jesus and we need Him and Him alone to be our salvation, to be our hope, and everything flows in and from that life that is in Him. That said, don't miss this. Hey, this struggle was present then. It's struggle now where there is so much that would fall into what we would often call legalism that would seek to bring our life back under rules that would say, hey, well, you can't really be a Christian unless you do this. You're not really a Christian unless you have this. You're not really, you know, really a follower of Jesus, or you're going to have to do this, you know, to, to maintain that. And that is a constant attack. Some of you know it well. Some of you have spent days. Some of you have spent years, you know, kind of under that kind of bondage and space that it's there. And you would recognize how serious this is. It's worth just noting, I like the way it words it, that when Paul and Barnabas hear this, they come against it. And again, it tells us in verse 2, therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them, they determined they needed to go uh, up to Jerusalem and, and, and deal with it there. I just like that. Again, it's a little bit of our beginning here this evening that just lets us know, hey, that it is needed. Uh, and when we think about the, the, the beauty of Jesus, we think about the simplicity of the gospel, we think about what we have in Jesus, it is one of those things that has to be disputed, has to be held to, has to be held fast to, and, 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 that, and so they find themselves facing that there, and we do as well. We find ourselves in a similar space in our world, constantly having to deal with it, and so we watch them do that. Now, we watch this whole thing begin to happen, and maybe it's familiar territory to you, but again, they make their way back up to Jerusalem, where Jesus died on the cross, where the church began, to come and bring this, you know, whole thing before those who are there. It says they came in verse 4, when they come to Jerusalem, uh, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all things that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees, uh, who believed, rose up saying, it is necessary to circumcise them and command them to keep the whole law of Moses. Like they got to go back under the dietary rules, all the, the laws that are in the Old Testament. They got to become Jews in, in that sense in order to be saved. Verse 6, now the apostles and elders came together uh, to consider the mat this matter. So we watch this taking place, and it forms a pattern that is not uncommon in church history and not even uncommon in our lives that think through. They, they, they gather, and they're going you know, they, to pull all the leaders who are there to discuss and say, hey, we need to figure out what's happening. We need to address the issue that's there. And so there is this place of, of counsel, of, of, of doing that that is a good thing. In fact, I'd like to begin it this way and just say, hey, debates. Uh, considering uh, God's truth, trying to pursue that, that absolutely can be a good thing. Now, I say it can be because it isn't always, but let me try to make sense of what I'm trying to say there. One of the things that really defines a cult, and often what a cult would do, is a place where you're not allowed to ask questions, uh, where it is decided what you believe, and, and you're not really encouraged to think or ask or pursue uh, so that, you know, like, hey, we, we just, we believe this. We're not really allowed to believe anything but that. I don't know if that's been a journey that you've walked on or you know people that have. I know some. And, uh, you know, it's just a, it's a very confusing thing. And I would like to reach out to you and say the beautiful thing about God is that is not the way he's looking at you. He has invited us to love him with all of our hearts and with all of our minds, 
with all of our soul and all of our strength. He's inviting you in that sense uh, to think, to question, to reason, and that's a beautiful space. The truth is that's one of the ways that God grows us, uh, that He grows us not by, by sometimes thinking, hey, I'm trying to figure this out. Like I'm you know, I heard this, I don't know if that's true, and I, you know, now it's going to bring things, and I'm going to have to reason through that, and it's just not a bad space. In fact, it's often a very good space uh, that God would grow us in, and so it's not a bad thing that this is happening in Acts 15. It's a good part of, of church growth and places in there where we'd have to think through truth and like, okay, what's true? What's right? Like, what are we holding fast to? Where does this go? Hey, those are good spaces to come. That's where they are, but maybe one of the things that I want to say the most clearly, I'm hoping helpfully, like if there's one thing that just feels like I'm supposed to press this before you tonight, it's this, and maybe it's for one person, maybe for all of us. When you think about what we're talking about tonight, and we're going to talk about this place where they're going to have this discussion about the gospel, and they're going to talk about you know, Gentiles getting saved, and how that works, and what's right, and what's wrong, and how that whole place works, What's at stake right now is not the gospel. What's at stake right now is not the truth. That's decided. I mean, that's firm. I mean, Jesus is building his church. The gospel stands. What's in this moment that is on the table isn't, you know, the future of the church. It isn't the the future of the gospel. It's really whether they're still going to be blessed and used by God whether they're still going to be there. You know, they're, they're under, what's on the table right now is their understanding and, and how this goes. What it's going to determine for them again is, hey, will God use them? Will God continue to work with them and, and, and bless them so that their lives can have eternal fruit and, and work? And had this gone poorly, and it doesn't go poorly, it's going to go pretty well. Had it gone poorly, God would have just kept the gospel moving. I mean, and they just would have moved off from the sidelines. And I want to say it in a very lovingly and careful way, that happens. That happens in church history, and that happens in lives. So we're kind of talking about this in a, in a, in a movement. We're talking about this in a church. We're talking about this in a season. But I also want to just kind of bring it down to your life. I don't know if you're wrestling tonight. I don't know if there's spaces where you're trying to figure out truth, what's right, what's wrong. I want to lovingly just tell you this. Hey, what's at stake right now isn't the truth. It's your understanding of the truth. God's truth, it reigns. I mean, what you decide to be true about God is not going to change God. I mean, He is God, and He is working, and nothing that you, well, I just decided that God is, you know, not loving. It's like you don't get to decide that. You know, you can be wrong, you know, and, and you can come to a wrong conclusion. That is not going to hinder him. It's not going to stop the gospel from moving forward. It is going to hinder your life. It is going to rob you where God's not going to be able to work through uh, that space where, where you're out of step, where you're out of step with him. And so it's kind of helpful to just to think that thing through. And I don't know if that even just helps. I, I found myself just thinking of conversations that I've had with people, and it's funny. I don't know if it's funny to you, I guess it is to me, you know, that some people, I mean, they're wrestling through things, and you would actually think that they're getting to decide. Like, they're like, you know, I'm really trying to decide out if Jesus is God, you know, and I don't know. I mean, if I make this decision, he's not going to be God, and he's like, well, you're not actually going to change that, you know. I mean, I love you, and, you know, he is, whether you believe it or not. You know, what, what's at stake right now is your understanding. Like, do you, do you understand who he is? Are you in step with that? You know, and if you're wrong, doesn't, you know, move you away from perhaps being saved, it will be where God's like, I can't bless that. I can't move through that. And so it's helpful just to watch this. In fact, what's interesting about that is that understanding will help us understand how Paul would talk about this. So we have this here in the book of Acts. We're getting the account of this division and the problems that are happening there. But he also writes the book of Galatians. In fact, the book of Galatians is entirely about this. So six chapters that in its essence are about the, the gospel and the, the problems of legalism, the problems of people coming and trying to put themselves back under the law where Paul would say, you know, to them, where God would say to us, are you so foolish? You know, having begun in the spirit, you're going to try to continue this thing in the flesh and just, just rebuke them strongly. 
Well, in that space, Paul talks about this moment. So I thought I would just put the, a few verses on the screen and hear him describe kind of these moments as he's stepping towards uh, this thing in Jerusalem and dealing with everything that's there. This is then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, and I also took Titus with me, and I went up by revelation. So it's interesting to let us know that somewhere in the midst of this, not only is it the situation, but God speaks to him, tells him to go. And so, so I took, I go up there with Paul, and Bar- I go up there with Barnabas, I take Titus with me, um, and having communicated to them that gospel, which I preach among the Gentiles, but privately uh, to those who were of reputation, lest by any means I might have run or had run in vain. So it's like I came up there and, you know, had to, had to, had to talk. We sat down with the leaders. I sat down, uh, you know, with the, the apostles, the elders, but privately, you know, lest I'd run in vain. Now, he's not saying, like, maybe I'm wrong, but he's kind of saying, unless this kind of totally, you know, brings ruin into the things that God's doing. As he describes it, he says this, he says, yet not even Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. So so we got there to Jerusalem, and Titus is this new believer, uh, this Gentile that got saved, and he says, he was there, and he was not like, I'm not getting circumcised, you know, like, no, I mean, that's, uh, you know, know, I'm not going to, you know, be compelled into that, this legalism that's going to try to be pressed in here that these these teachers that are bringing this in there says, no, even he didn't give in to that, which was helpful and good, Uh, and he says, and this occurred because of false brethren secretly brought in, who came in by stealth, despised our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage. This understanding adds to it a little bit uh, and helps us understand. He says, hey, when these people brought in this, it turns out they really weren't even believers. It says they were actually false brethren, like they were fake Christians, like they, you know, come in and they're, they're, they're Jewish and they're watching these things are happening. They're trying to kind of appropriate it uh, back into Judaism, back into the, the things that are there. He says they came in secretly, you know, they didn't come in like, telling us, hey, we just, they're like, hey, yeah, we believe too, but, you know, you really need to come back and be like us. Uh, But they might, they do that, that they could bring us into bondage. To whom Paul says, we did not yield submission, even for an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. So, man, we heard this, and we did, it wasn't like, well, we kind of went with it, it was like, not even like for an hour. I mean, we knew that the gospel's at stake here, like the beauty of Christ, like the, the gospel that's working in people's lives, But, Paul says, those who seem to be something, whatever they were, it makes no difference to me. God shows personal favoritism to no man, for those who seem to be something added nothing to me. This maybe is the quote that's going to help us think through what I'm trying to tell you now, and it's just helpful to think through. You know, if you you read this wrongly, it would almost maybe be like, man, is is that, you know, arrogant? Is that how it works? No, it's not that at all. He's saying the same thing I just said. Hey, we went up there, you know, to, to have these people talk about it, but whatever role they had, they don't really get to determine truth. I mean, the gospel is the gospel, and had they been wrong, they would have been wrong, you know, and that wouldn't have changed the work that God was doing. Uh, you know, it's not as if they had the authority there in Jerusalem to change that. He says, they didn't, they didn't add anything to me. In fact, he says, when James and Cephas and John who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that had been given to me. They gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship so that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. He says, hey, they were seeing a, a fruit of seeing some Jews come to Christ, the circumcised, and, and they recognized the gospel and gave them the right hand of fellowship. Again, it's just helpful to kind of walk that whole thing through and say, okay, so we, we get this, and it just helps a little bit, kind of just kind of pulls back the weight and says, okay, what is at stake right now is not the work of God. That would have happened anyway. God's going to do the work. Jesus promised. He promised that his work is going forward. What's at stake right now is their understanding, their agreement, and whether that's going to continue working. So let's watch how it happens. They get there, and it tells us in verse 7, when there had been much dispute, Peter rose up and said to them, men and brethren, you know that a good while ago God chose among us that by my mouth uh, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So Peter steps in here, and he's going to testify to what he knows. He's going to tell them the story uh, of what God has done. 
and, and that God had, had done in the midst of this. And this reminds us back, because this is the story back in Acts chapter 10 and 11. It says, you guys remember, like, not only did this happen, that Peter was one of the first used to preach the gospel to a Gentile and a Gentile get saved. They'd already come to this understanding. It's like, wow, okay, God's saving Gentiles not by making them Jews. He's saving them simply by faith. So he says this in verse 8, So God, and knows the heart, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. He says, you guys know how this happened. We preached the gospel was there, and it was by faith. It was by faith they believed. It was by faith that they understood this. God purified their hearts that way and, and had done that. Then he reasons with them this way. He says, now therefore, why do you test God? By putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples that which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear. It's a great nugget. He says, here's the, the thing. He says, why would you do this? Why would you take and try to put these believers back under the Old Testament law? Why would you put a yoke on them that wouldn't work for them? It didn't work for us. And ultimately, you would be tempting God and pressing against what He is doing. Hey, that's an important understanding. See, we think about the Old Testament. We think about the law, the, the Ten Commandments. We think about the law given in the first five books of the Old Testament that describe righteousness and what God was looking. Hey, we understand this. In fact, Galatians would tell us that the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. He says the law had a power and it had a purpose. Its purpose was to show us that we needed Christ, to show the world that there was no other way, that the, the law being put out by saying, hey, be good, do the right thing, do these things, it, it only proved that they couldn't do it. In fact, in Timothy, Paul would say it this way. He says, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for a lawless and insubordinate, for the ungodly and for sinners. He says, here's what we know. We know that this, the Bible is good. We know that the law is good, but it has an intention. It's to draw people to Christ. It's to draw people to say, hey, we need Him. Uh, you know, and so there is that sense of saying that we need to use uh, the Bible lawfully, rightfully. It's an interesting thing. You know, I found myself just thinking about it, and Joanne and I were talking about it a few days ago. We just, it's an interesting thing that, you know, as we read the Bible, and I think probably for many of you, you do. Maybe you read the whole thing. Maybe you walk with us through that, and you read through Old Testament passages. You read through the law. You read through, uh, the, you know, the different prophets that are there. One of the odd things that can happen, and, and maybe it doesn't happen to you. Maybe you're like, Jim, I'm totally, don't ever go there. One of the things that odd can happen to me is that sometimes, I find myself reading it as if what they were saying applies to me in the same way, as if in somehow, you know, it's like, you know, you read through them, it's like, oh yeah, we just need to do that. Like, like that's, you know, we need to be that or do that. And it's not that the law isn't right. It's not that God's ways aren't right, but it can't be done. It was a burden. It was a yoke that crushed them. It crushed them so that there was no hope of salvation, so that there's always this space when you're there reading those passages, it's to get us to Jesus. He says the law was a tutor to say, you really, really, really need Jesus. Like, you absolutely need him. It was to bring us to Christ, not so that we'd stay under it. Hey, the law was good. It's good to convince somebody right here. If you're here this evening and you're not a follower of Jesus and you haven't believed on him and you're thinking that you're good enough, you're thinking, well, I, you know, I think, you know, if there's going to be a you know, standard, you know, I kind of, I think I'm going to do okay. It's like, oh, you are not. Let's talk to you about the law. Let's talk to you about what God calls righteousness. Let's talk to you about what, how he equates the world. And if you could feel that weight, it would crush you. And you would be like, there's no hope. I can't save myself. I can't be good enough. I can't, I can't do that. And you absolutely can't. It's to draw you to Christ. It's to draw you so that we would be led to and find Jesus to be the hope of our life. And so Peter's like, why would we do that? It didn't work for anybody. Like nobody's ever been able to, you know, to live under the law. So why would we take something that 
didn't work for us uh, and try to put that back on other people. And it's just a good word to hear. And then he says it this way. Verse 11, but we believe that through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. That is just really well said. It's just really well said. So he's like, okay, so Gentiles are getting saved by faith. They're not having to, you know, live under the law. It's by faith they're saved. He says, you know what? That's the only way we're saved. Uh, It's not just, well, I guess Gentiles can get saved by faith, but Jews, I mean, Jews, we're going to have to, you know, still earn our salvation. He's like, no, for us too, I mean, like the only way to get saved is by faith. It's through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. By grace, we have been saved through faith. It's not of ourselves. It's a gift of God. Like, that's the only way. Hey, it's a good word, and he lands it. And honestly, it's simply true. I don't know if you see it that way. Uh, It's, you know, kind of an odd thing that sometimes for us, we just have to think that through. Like, I don't know anybody right now in the world that you would look on and think, hey, they need Jesus. Like, you know, uh, you know, maybe you're looking at somebody who's totally making a mess of their life or, you know, living in rebellion and living in the confusion that's in our world today. And you're like, man, they need Jesus. And I just would tell you, they do. And you need Jesus exactly the same way. It's not like, well, you know, they're really, you know, you know, it's like, I, that's the only access any of us have. It's, it's that faith that says, hey, it's God, that we need his work into our lives. And so Peter's able just to say, hey, guys, you know this. I mean, he's explaining this, but again, once more, this is something they have already walked through. He'd preached the gospel in Acts chapter 10, and then he gathered with this very crowd in Acts 11 and explained it, and explained, hey, God's saving Gentiles, and they're like, you know, he is. You're like, okay, so God is granting to the Gentiles faith. He's like, guys, you already know this. You, you remember the stories. You remember the things that he's done. Well, as he says that, it says then in verse 12, then all the multitude kept silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul declaring how many miracles and wonders that God had worked through them, uh, you know, among the Gentiles. So Paul, Barnabas, they just, they're just sharing. In fact, they've been doing that, right? I mean, you caught it. It's back up there in verse three, when they were on their way to Jerusalem. It says they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, just describing the conversion of the Gentiles. And they caused great joy, you know, to all the brethren. So, I mean, they're just, they're telling, hey, God is in the move. And people are getting saved. They talk about some of the miracles that were proving that God was in this. They're showing God's faithfulness. They're declaring what God has worked. And it's a good space. Like, hey, look at what God is doing. Hey, we see it. We're watching all that happening. So in verse 13, tells us, And after they had become silent, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, Listen to me. Simon has declared how God at, the, at first visited the Gentiles to take, them out, take, them, take out of them a people for his name. And with these words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, after this I will return and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins. I will set it up so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who are called by my name says the Lord who does all these things. Known to God from eternity are all his works, James says. Therefore I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God, but that we should write them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled and from blood. For Moses has throughout many generations those who preach him in every city being read in the synagogues every Sabbath. Well, let's talk about this for a moment. So James steps into this moment, and he is going to carry the, the argument. He's going to bring it into a place uh, with his judgment, where he's going to speak into this. A couple quick things for us just to quickly process. James is not James the Apostle. You probably know that. But in the Gospels, you have James and John, who were disciples, apostles that were with Jesus. But that James has died. Uh, he was killed. He was the first apostle uh, to lay down his life when, when Herod killed him back in chapter 12. And uh, so he's not that one. Who is this James? Well, this James is the one that writes the, the, the book of James in the Bible, which is the half-brother of Jesus. So Mary and Joseph have other kids after Jesus. And 
Uh, they don't believe. Uh, we know from the, from the Gospels that even though they grew up with Jesus, their hearts are hard, and it says it wasn't until after the resurrection that they actually believe. James ends up becoming not only a follower of Jesus, but he seems to have kind of moved into a place of, uh, of being one of the leaders there in the church of Jerusalem, and that's exactly where he's found now. Now, there's a lot of debate uh, among, this, among Christian circles that, again, probably won't interest most of us to spend a whole bunch of time on it. There's a lot of debate as to what role James has right now. Some believe that in some sense he's moved into prominence, like maybe he's kind of the senior pastor, if you could say it that way, uh, of the church in that place. It's entirely possible. He does seem to carry a weight of authority. That said, it would be pressing it too far uh, to say this in the midst of this. When James steps up here, it's not like he gets to be the one that makes the decision. It could be that, you know, as everybody's just sharing, when James shares, it's kind of like, well, he said it well. Like, that's exactly what God's doing. I mean, when he, you know, speaks these words out, the apostles and the elders and the leaders are there, you know, kind of, you know, hear this, and they're like, well, you know, that. Yeah, exactly. That's where we are. In fact, when they write the letter, it's worth noting, just go on down there to verse 23, says they wrote this letter by them, says the apostles and the elders and their brethren, to the brethren who are in Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. So it's not written from James, and I kind of just point this out, that it's not like he's in charge or he's the leader. It's really the church there in Jerusalem, the leaders who are all kind of, you know, stepping into this way. That said, it's worth just quickly tossing it out. Some of you have grown up within a Catholic circle, and, you know, your kind of understanding would be that, you know, Peter would be the, the one who's there, and it's just an interesting thing to see that he's not. I mean, James really is the one that is stepping into this kind of role in space, not as a pope or anything like that, but certainly as an influential leader, and, he, and he's carrying great weight into the space, and he's carrying great weight into this place, and again, he just is able to, to just speak, and it could be, again, just almost in this, you know, council of people who are trying to figure this out, that when James speaks, it just lands for everybody. They're like, that's exactly where this is. Like, he said it well. So, what do he say? Well, we go back to it. It says in verse 13, men and brethren, James says, listen to me. Simon has declared how God at the first visited the Gentiles to take out from the take out of them a people for his name, and with this the words of the prophets agree. We gaze into all of this, and so he's able just to say, hey, here's what we know. We know what God has done. We know what God has done. We, we know what Peter just said. Peter has declared what God has done, and we also know what the Scripture says. And so he gives a quote out of the book of Amos that uh, he says, here's the thing. We, we know that God has spoken about this, how that he is going to say to the rest of the mankind in verse 17 that they could seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who will be called by you know, his name. He says, so Here's the thing, we know not only is that God is doing this, but it's, it's absolutely what the Bible says. It's absolutely what Scripture says. And without spending a bunch of time, I'll just simply say, hey, that's not an unimportant part of this discussion. Hey, anytime that we find ourselves trying to figure out what God is doing, trying to figure out truth, trying to figure out uh, righteousness, hey, it's the Word of God that, that, that is our authority. It's the Word of God that, that, you know, lands for us that way. John Stott said it this way, his counsels have, have no authority in the church unless it can be shown that their conclusions are in accord with Scripture. Again, I want to be very careful that I'm not answering questions that nobody's asking, but I just want to tell you, in the last 2,000 years, there have been a lot of counsels there have been a lot of things that happened exactly like Acts chapter 15, and some of them are so important. Like, they stand for truth and become pivotal moments in, in church history where false teaching is ferreted out and said, hey, that's like, no, we don't believe that. But it's not always gone that way. Sometimes church councils go entirely wrong. Sometimes people kind of go into weird spaces. And so what John Stott is saying is, says, hey, it, Really, it only matters what the Bible says. And if, they, if they're, you know, coming back to the Scriptures, hey, then that's, that's absolutely accurate. Some of you know that Martin Luther, who really was used kind of in the Protestant Reformation, kind of pulling out from the, the, the deep dive that Catholicism had done into error, you know, kind of stood up and said, hey, you know, here's what we know. Popes and councils, they contradict each other. Uh, they, they mess up all the time. It's just to the Word. 
to the word I'm captive. Show me in the book, you know, what's truth, and I'll always land there. And that's exactly where we are. Hey, we are a people that are meant to be able to say, hey, it is truth. It is this book. It is things that we have here. Hey, I don't want to go off on too deep of a rabbit trail, but I just will tell you, I hope you hear that. I hope you understand that this is God's Word, and our authority does not extend beyond this, nor does it flow outside of this. You know, we live in a weird world. Uh, whether you're aware of it right now, around the, the, the Christian circles of our nation, things are being debated, and, and things of gender fluidity, things about, uh, you know, whether, you know, transsexual or homosexual, and, and, and things are okay. And one of the scary things is that for many of them, they say, hey, you know, you can't really just say the Bible says. Uh, You know, one of the leaders who is kind of a proponent of this right now says, hey, don't ever say that. You should never say, well, the Bible says as if somehow that were our authority. I should tell you, this is absolutely our authority. This is absolutely our authority so that no matter what it is we're trying to kind of figure out, if you think you're smarter than the scriptures or you think that your understanding could take you beyond that, you are so in error. You know, it should always be with James, like, hey, here's what we know. Hey, this is what the Bible says. Hey, the Bible says this, and that's where we absolutely need to land. And he does. So he says, here's what we know. Verse 18, known to God from eternity are all his works. He says, therefore, I judge. Like, here's what I'm saying. Here's, here's how I would kind of render in this is that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God. Like, we should not make this harder for them. Like, that is, we should not make this confusing. But we write them to abstain from things polluted by idols, sexual morality, from things strangled, from blood. Quick pause. Understand this. He says, here's the thing. Hey, you know, we're not going to, you know, we're not going to try to make this, you know, we're not going to trouble them, but we are going to give them some advice. He's going to say, hey, we're going to send them, we're going to write to them to abstain from idols, sexual morality, things strangled from blood. But please quickly understand, he's not making that part of the gospel. I mean, if those things became requirements to get saved, then we are doing the same thing that they are. These are not reported that way. It doesn't flow that way. In fact, it gives you the reason in the next verse. Four, like here's the reason. Moses has throughout the generations those who preach him in every city being read in the synagogues every Sabbath. He says, here's the thing, like God is doing a work in the Jews right now. He's, you know, drawing those in. And so, hey, we need to tell them, hey, no, you're not under the law, but boy, this should be kind of a missional kind of an understanding in in the way that we live our lives so that Paul would talk about it in matters of conscience and in Romans and 1 Corinthians where he says, hey, we're not under those things. But there are spaces where we say, hey, you know, for the sake of the gospel, there are things that we're not going to you know, deliberately flaunt in their face so that we can continue to try to win them to Jesus without spending, again, a bunch of time. That's a key argument for missions. That's a key argument for the way missions are done in any nation. Uh, so that if you're, you know, moving into a Muslim nation to try to take the gospel, you know, that you're not going to put yourself under Islam, but at the same moment, there are things that you might do that would say, hey, you know, we're not going to you know, immediately try to make them angry. You know, we're going we're gonna to do some things that do that. I think about, we have a couple missionaries, uh, my sister who has served overseas, and there are spaces that she respects, you know, the, some of their culture, so that, you know, at times she would wear, you know, even a face covering. If she doesn't, she'll definitely wear, you know, long sleeves, things that they would say, hey, would be expected of women. She doesn't do it because she's under their law. She does it because she says, I don't want to just immediately turn them off where the first thing they look at me and say, you know, you floozy American, you know, you know, instead I want to say, hey, I, I want to sh- share the gospel with you. And so he says, hey, that's what they're doing here. They give them a few things that are neither binding on you or I in the same way, nor for them. It's not repeated anywhere else uh, within the, the New Testament, but it was just a sense of saying, hey, this is what we need to do. Well, they come to this whole place, you know, we watch all this happen, and, and they're going to send out a letter. Uh, I think we'll talk more about it next time, but let me just read that letter with you uh, as we seek to kind of circle around and begin heading towards our close this evening. Verse 22, it says, Then it pleased the apostles and the elders and the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas, who is also named Barsabas, and Silas, leading men among the brethren. They wrote this letter by them, the apostles, 
the elders, the brethren, uh, to the brethren who are in the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. Greetings. Since we have heard that some who went out from us have troubled you with words, unsettling your souls, saying you must be circumcised and keep the law, to whom we gave no such commandment, it seemed good to us, being assembled with one accord to send chosen men to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who will also report the same things to you by the word of mouth, for it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things, that you abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you do these, you will do well. Farewell. So they write the letter that does all of this. They, they, they declare, again, the things that are there. And I want to just circle back to that, that point that they're, they're, you know, really kind of echoing out the truth. They're, they're saying, hey, we're, we're standing with this. But hands down, I want to make sure you get it. Hey, if they're wrong, if, if they gotten wrong, it wouldn't change the gospel. It just would have said they would have been out of track. What's being, you know, in, in play is this moment is to understand, hey, truth is there and, and it's theirs to be there. And, and they do stand. Say, hey, we're standing with the gospel. We're standing with the things of God. We're standing, you know, against the false doctrines and saying, hey, this is wrong. Like, we disagree. And it's one of the great things that can happen. So again, church history, if you're familiar with it, it's happened a number of times where church councils and creeds were at times adhered to and said, hey, these are wrong. Uh, these things are wrong. And those are pivotal moments in church history. Not that they ever would create uh, truth that wasn't truth. It's just they're like saying, hey, we just are recognizing it. We're recognizing that which is there so that we could be in that right step, in that place of where things are going, because here's again what we know. Hey, Jesus is doing a work. I think about his promise in Matthew 16, where speaking to Peter, uh, where Peter was asked, you know, who are you? And, uh, and Jesus, he said, you're the Christ, you're the son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said, on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Again, not wanting to get lost into that. The rock isn't Peter. The rock is the gospel. The rock is exactly what Peter did. Like, who do you believe? Like, I believe you're the Christ. I believe you're the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, that is where I'm building my church. I'm going to build my church on, on the gospel, on this belief in who Christ is by faith in his name. And if I'm making this clear, I'll just say it one more time. This is not in doubt. This is not in question. This is not ever going to be stopped. Jesus is building his church, and he's been doing it for the last 2,000 years, and he's going to keep doing it till he comes back. Every now and then, you'll get somebody that'll, you know, kind of stand up, you know, against some false teaching or thing that's there, and they're like, you know, if we don't act now, like, the whole church is going to go, you know, you know, into the toilet. You know, like, if we don't do something, I'm like, everything's gone. And I just, I lovingly say, hey, we should stand against false doctrine, but the gospel's not in doubt. Jesus is not going to stop building his church. If people get wrong with it, they'll get out of step, and then God will pour out the gospel on somebody else, and they'll, and they'll continue hearing it because he is absolutely doing that because he's faithful. And so the, the area that it draws to that they're needing to come to is orient their lives back to the truth, orient their lives back around that so that they could be right and, and be in the right step. Uh, with things that God is doing. That's what's happening here. They're doing it well. And I wonder where that finds you this evening. If you want, you can close your Bibles, notebooks, that which you have open. And we're going to head towards a time where we take communion. And it's an interesting thing. Part of the things we're doing in communion is exactly this. We're orienting our lives back around Christ, saying, hey, you know, here's what I know. Jesus died and rose again. Like, this is my life. This is my hope. And your belief about that you're holding fast to that, doesn't change the fact that he is that. He's the son of God. He's the one that gave his life. He's, he's building his church. What, what is at stake right now is the orientation of your soul. Like, am I, like, God, am I in step with you? Am I holding fast to you? And so I'm inviting you to that. I'm inviting as we take communion this evening that, boy, whatever that finds you oriented tonight, that you'd find yourself drawn to Christ, resting in him, 
just resting in his good work and this, just the, the hope that is only found in, in who he is, that we have no other life, we have no other boast, we have nothing else that we can put our hope in except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Like that is our hope and all of it. And so wherever that's found you tonight, just longing that you'd orient it yourself there. So when, uh, Wednesday nights when we take communion, you guys probably recognize how we do this, but quick understanding. I'm going to pray, ask God to draw us into this. And the worst team is going to lead us in two songs. We're going to put the communion elements up here on, on, on pedestals, and we're just going to invite you whenever you're ready to take communion. Come up here, grab the two cups. You can take communion up here. You can take it back to your chairs. You can stand. You can kneel. Whenever you're ready in the midst of that, take communion, and then just kind of head back to your seat and worship with us. It's got two songs. So somewhere in the midst of those two songs, just take communion. When you're done with your cups, uh, there's a nice little square space on the chair in front of you down there. You can just kind of put your cups into that. We'll clean them up later so you don't have to sit there and go like, what do I do with these? And we don't really want them spilt on the chair. So put them down that little cubby there so they're kind of held fast in that place. And, and it'd be a great space to walk through that. Well, with that as our aim, just to have time and, and just to take communion this evening, let's ask him right now that he would draw us there. Right now, Jesus, I think about even the song we were singing as we headed into the, the study, that Jesus, we just need to trust you more. We absolutely need to find our life and hope in just you. God, I'm aware of so many false teachings that press into our church and press into people that would seek to draw them away from you, to trust in themselves, to trust in their works, to trust in what they're doing. And you are inviting us to have no other hope, no other boast, no other trust, but you. Jesus, this I know, you are the only hope. I know that you have paid the full price for our sin and risen again. I know that you are building your church and nothing is going to stop that. The only question is where we're going to be. Are we going to be in step with you or are we going to find ourselves on the sidelines? because of our arrogance or our ability to be knocked out of the, the space by false truths and, and doctrines that would lead us astray. God, I ask right now that you'd orient us afresh to you, that we'd find ourselves holding fast to Jesus. So Lord, as we take communion, would you help us to do that, to remember you in a way that reorients and holds us fast to you. We ask for that together right now. In Jesus' name, amen.